The epistle of Jude contains four charges to the scattered and suffering saints. First, believers are to contend earnestly for the faith. Second, we are to remember the words of the apostles and the works of the apostates. Third, we are to remain in God's love. And fourth, we are to show mercy to believers who are struggling or even spreading false teaching. How are you doing with those four charges? Now the basis for these four charges is the threat from false teachers and their infiltration into the church. To drive home the point of this threat, Jude outlined 12 charges against the false teachers, as well as six descriptions of their insidiousness. After considering all that has been said about false teachers, we must wonder who will rescue us from these false teachers and their teachings. In response, Jude provides the answer in verse 24 and 25. The answer is God our Savior, that is Jesus Christ the Lord. Now the closing two verses of Jude's epistle form a doxology, that is a declaration of praise to God. Doxologies are found throughout both the Old and New Testaments and usually begin with the term blessed, the phrase to him, or contain the phrase through Jesus Christ. For example, 2 Chronicles 29, 10-11. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. 1 Peter 4.11 So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And 2 Peter 3.18 To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, doxologies are very common in New Testament epistles, especially Paul's. However, unlike most New Testament epistles that close with a prayer or declaration, Jude and 2 Peter close with a doxology, as we saw a moment ago in 2 Peter 3.18. Jude's doxology follows the typical biblical doxological four-part formula. It begins with the addressee, then an ascription of honor, the extent of the honor, and finally the affirmation. So when we consider Jude 24 and 25, we see the addressee here, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The ascription of honor given to the addressee is this, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And the extent of the honor is this, before all time, and now, and forever. And the affirmation of that honor is, Amen. And Jude's doxology also contains the final three triads of his epistle. So to recap the book of Jude, beginning with verse 1, the first triad, three actions of God, he called us, loved us, kept us. In verse 2, the second triad, 
There are three blessings given to saints, mercy, peace, and love. The third triad in verse 4, three charges against false teachers. They crept in unaware, turn grace into licentiousness, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth triad was three examples of judgment in verses 5 through 7, Israel in the wilderness, fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. The fifth triad was three more charges against the false teachers in verse 8. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angels. The sixth triad was three examples of wickedness from the Old Testament in verse 11, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Then we had in verse 12 and 13, two sets of three descriptions of false teachers. They're hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds. Eighth triad, autumn trees, wild waves, wandering stars. The ninth triad, we were given three reasons for the second coming in verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. The tenth triad was three more charges against false teachers in verse 16. They complain and grumble, follow their lust, speak arrogant and flattering words. The eleventh triad was three more charges against false teachers in verse 19. They cause division, they're worldly-minded, they're devoid of the Spirit. Verse 20 and 21, we have our twelfth triad. We saw three works of the Trinity. We have the Father's work of watchful care, the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, and the Son's work of mercy. The thirteenth triad was three ways to remain in God's love. Verse 20 and 21, build yourself up in the holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we had three lasting virtues in verse 20 and 21, faith, love, and hope. The fifteenth triad in verse 22 to 23 was three believers who need mercy. That is, believers struggling with doubt, believers influenced by false doctrine, and believers spreading false doctrine. And now in verse 25, we have the 16th, 17th, and 18th triad. The 16th triad, we're given three titles for Jesus in verse 25. He's God, he's Savior, he's Lord. In verse 25, we see three qualities belonging to Jesus, glory, majesty, and dominion and authority. And finally, the book closes with three periods of time, before all time, the past, now, the present, and forever, the future. And so as Jude closes his epistle, he provides us with encouragement. That is, God will ultimately protect us from apostatizing with the false teachers. And notably, Jude closes by demonstrating the power of God, which calls for the praise of believer. And so as we look at verses 24 and 25, we see the power of God and the praise of believers. So as we begin with verse 24, we're going to note God's power for believers. God's power for believers. Again, because of the danger of false teachers, believers require someone more powerful to protect them. And that someone is the triune God. The to him, in verse 24, is tied to God our Savior in verse 25. And Jude demonstrates God's power which keeps us from stumbling and pronounces us blameless with great joy. And so the first emanation of God's power is performed in the present. And the second emanation of God's power will be performed in the future. So let's look at the first part of verse 24 and see God's power protects believers from stumbling. God's power protects believers from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. 
That phrase, now to him who is able, is a common phrase used in New Testament doxologies. Romans 16.25 Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, that verb is able, dunamai, means to have power or capability. That the verb is in the passive voice indicates that this power or capability is done by God. Hence, God has the power or capability to do something. In Romans 16.25, God has the power to strengthen believers. In Ephesians 3.20, God has the power to do above and beyond all that we can think and ask. And here in Jude, God has the power to keep you from stumbling. Now Jude's usual Greek verb translated as keep is tereo. However, here he uses the verb philoso translated as to keep, to reflect the idea of guarding or protecting. This verb pictures a military guard who protects those under his watch from external attacks. And such a soldier is prepared to lay down his life to protect those in his charge. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter used the verb philoso to explain how God preserved Noah through the flood. Quote, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved philoso Noah. In other words, God took all the responsibility to guard Noah, guaranteeing that neither he nor anyone else in the ark would perish in the flood. Indeed, God is able or powerful to guard his people. As Paul testifies in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect philoso you from the evil one. See, Jude uses the verb philoso to denote how God, specifically Jesus Christ, laid down his life to protect those under his watch. Christ sacrificially laid down his life to protect us from stumbling. To what, though, does this stumbling refer? To protect believers from stumbling does not mean that God keeps us from sinning. The fact is, we all sin. All believers sin. And when we sin, it is incumbent upon us to confess our sin and receive forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, as a loving Father will chasten any believer who continues to sin. Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Note that Paul's point here in Hebrews 12, 7, and 8 
is that if a professed believer continues in sin without divine discipline, then they are not a genuine believer. So while discipline is difficult, it is confirmation that one is truly a child of God. Hebrews 12, 6 states, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, Peter used the verbal form of stumbling, aptestas, in 2 Peter 1.10. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Pateo. Contextually, the particular sin which Peter is referencing is apostasy or falling away from God. Thus, the stumbling, aptestas, to which Jude refers, does not refer to sinning, but instead it refers to falling away, apostatizing, in other words, abandoning the faith once delivered. Jude's point that God protects believers from committing apostasy is a promise of eternal security. Remember, the apostates are doomed to the lake of fire. See, God is so powerful that while genuine believers may be deceived by false teachers, he will never, ever allow them to fall into apostasy. God's power protects believers from stumbling. And secondly, God's power pronounces believers as blameless. Second part of verse 24. Now to him who is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Again, God's power not only protects us from stumbling, but also pronounces us blameless. Note that the phrase, who is able can apply not only to God's present work of protecting us, but also to his future work of pronouncing us as blameless. That verb, to make you stand, histame, means to weigh in a balance. In the Septuagint, the Greek term histame translates the Aramaic term tekil in Daniel 5.27. Tekil, you have been weighed on the scale and found deficient. Now the idea of God weighing us conveys the idea of judgment. This judgment known as the Bema Seat or Judgment Seat of Christ occurs at the rapture. At this, at this judgment, we will be weighed or judged by Jesus and pronounced blameless. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now that term blameless... Amomas is a sacrificial term used to describe the Passover lamb, which was without blemish. Exodus 12.5 Your lamb shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. Peter used the term to describe Christ as the unblemished lamb, indicating the Messiah was sinless. 1 Peter 1.19 But with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And in eternity past, God predetermined that all who would believe would be holy and blameless, that is, sinless in his sight. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Indeed, my friends, it is Christ himself who presents us as blameless before his Father. We are pronounced blameless because of Christ's salvific work. Ephesians 5, 
25 and 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Colossians 1, 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now notice here that God not only cleanses us, but he gives us great joy. Great joy means to be extremely glad, which results in verbal and physical responses, including shouting, leaping, jumping, and dancing. What a contrast to the sinner who will stand before the presence of God with fear and trembling at the great white throne judgment. More specifically, great joy refers to the future festive celebration that will occur when Christ comes as king, delivers his people, and establishes his kingdom. Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 61, 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jeremiah 3.17 For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, shout among the chief nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Revelation 19.7 let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now my friends, we're going to have great joy because we're going to be like Christ. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God and has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will also have great joy because we will be presented as blameless before the Father. Ephesians 5.27 So that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And as well, we have great joy because now that we are blameless, Satan will have nothing with which to accuse us. And further, it was this great joy of the believers that was set before Christ, which enabled him to endure the torture and agony of the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now returning to Jude 24, the phrase in the presence of his glory can be rendered as the glorious brightness of God's presence. Before being judged blameless, we could not stand in the glorious brightness of God's presence. Exodus 33, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. However, once we are judged and pronounced blameless, that is sinless, we can freely stand in the presence of his glory. Now regarding this standing in his presence, we need to note here that there are two phases in which one enters into God's presence. First, we enter God's presence at death. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are of good courage, 
I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home or to be present with the Lord. And though we will be in heaven, understand we will be in an intermediate state. That is, we have not received our new bodies. We're only an immaterial person. That is, our soul and spirit is standing in the presence of God. But then we will enter God's presence at the rapture. At the rapture, the dead in Christ will be bodily resurrected, and those believers still alive will be caught up in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. You see, at that moment, believers, we are going to receive new bodies free from the curse of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. From here, we will physically and bodily enter into God's presence. Knowing that God protects us from stumbling and pronounces us blameless ought to be sufficient motivation for us to live in purity. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So in response to God's power, believers are to praise God. And this brings us to verse 25. Believers praise God for his power. Believers praise God for his power. Verse 25. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. See, in response to God's power, we are to praise God. And praise is given to the only God. Now the term only, manas, refers to God being the only one. It is a commonly used statement in the New Testament, doxology, to denote that God is unique and there are no other beings like him. Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. Which you will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone, same word, manas, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the use of only in this context is an allusion to the Shema as found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Whereas the false teachers deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jude confessed there is only one God. Deuteronomy 4.35 To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him. And our one Lord, Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. 
1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, one mediator also, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That one God is Jesus, the Lord and Savior. Now, this belief in one God is known as monotheism. Besides the many biblical proof texts, there are three key arguments which support monotheism. First, study the world religions and it will demonstrate that at their roots, they began as monotheistic before devolving into polytheism, a belief in many gods. Each of these religions shares a common truth. One God who is personal, omniscient, and omnipotent, who created the world, is the author of morality, and provides reconciliation to those who disobey him. That these religions share these common truths demonstrates that monotheism, worship of one God, is foundational to humanity's belief in God. Second, the universe demands one God who orders and sustains the universe. See, if more than one God exists, it would result in chaos and disorder in the universe. And such chaos and disorder would be the result of each competing deity's authority and choice. And third, we need to note that God is a perfect being. Perfection means that God lacks nothing in his character or attributes. In other words, God is complete, full, wanting, and nothing. That means that if there is another deity which exists... It would have to be different from God. And anything different from perfect is less than perfect and not God. Now returning to Jude 25, the phrase, God our Savior, originates in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 45, 15. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. In the New Testament, God is designated as Savior eight times, whereas Jesus is referred to as Savior 16 times. That both God and Jesus are identified as Savior provides evidence that Jesus is God. Indeed, according to Titus 2.13, Jesus Christ is, quote, our great God and Savior. And so therefore the term only also applies to the title Savior, meaning there is no salvation in any other person. As Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. Now notice here that God accomplished the work of Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. The preposition through, duh, expresses the means of being Savior. See, God is a tripartite being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God who exists in three persons. And while God in general is the Savior, in particular, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, served as the Savior. 2 Peter 1.1 Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So salvation comes only through Jesus, the Messiah. God was glorified in the redemption of humanity as accomplished through the Messiah. Thus, Scripture declares that God the Father is glorified through Jesus Christ. Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Peter 4, 11, In all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Now notice here that for the fourth time in his epistle, Jude refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 4, verse 17, verse 21, and now verse 25. Lord, kurios, is the New Testament equivalent for the Hebrew title of divinity, Yahweh. Robert Mount stated that to call Jesus Lord is declare that he is God. So by referring to Jesus as Lord or Yahweh, Jude underscored the truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Though the false teachers deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, Jude reinforced that Jesus is God, he is Savior, and he is Lord. Now God is not a Savior and Christ is not a Lord. He is our Savior and our Lord. Believer, you and I personally possess Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And it's only those who repent of their sin and place their faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross that can make such a claim. You see, Satan can claim that Jesus is the Savior. He can claim that Jesus is the Lord. But he can never profess that Jesus is his Savior or his Lord. And because Jesus is God's Savior and Lord, he is worthy of praise. And praise is given to him because he possesses three qualities. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now, while it appears in English to be four qualities, dominion and authority are synonymous terms depicting different aspects of the same quality. A similar usage of synonyms occurs in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. See, Paul stated that Christ gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. But pastors and teachers are not two separate gifts, but one gift, pastor-teacher. See, the term teacher defines the term pastor. A pastor guards and guides the church by teaching. Now, regarding the three qualities, we are to praise God first by acknowledging Christ's glory. Now, the Greek term for glory, doxa, conveys the idea of honor. The Hebrew term for glory, kebod, means weight and comes from a financial term for scales used to determine the cost or value of something. Hence, glory describes the value and honor of Christ. And to ascribe glory to Christ means give praise to him for who he is and what he's done. Next, we praise God by acknowledging his majesty, Christ's majesty. Majesty, megaleoctes, describes his greatness or eminence. The term first appears in the Septuagint translation of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness, megaleoctes, to our God. That majesty belongs to Christ means that he is the great one or the important one. And finally, we praise God by acknowledging Christ's dominion and authority. Dominion, kratos, refers to his power to direct and govern. Authority, exousia, is the right to direct and govern. That Christ has dominion and authority means that he has the power and right to govern. He is the sovereign one, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And believer, you and I must give serious consideration as to whether or not we praise God by acknowledging Christ's glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now these three qualities belong to Jesus before all time, now, and forever. The phrase before all time refers to the past. Now refers to the present, and forever speaks of the future. Together these three terms speak of eternity. Now, the closest parallel to Jude's threefold statement about eternity 
is John's threefold description of Jesus' eternality in Revelation 1.4. Quote, him who is and who was and who is to come. John's point is that Jesus is the Lord over history. He was in control before history began. He was in control while history is being made. And he will be in control long after history has passed. And so Jude's point is that glory, majesty, dominion, authority belong to Jesus throughout eternity. And now Jude ends his doxology and his epistle with one word, amen. The term amen derives from the Hebrew term emeth, meaning so let it be. It indicates the commitment of the writer and readers to the truth found in the worshipful utterance. Indeed, all that Jude has written in this epistle is true. And so Jude's epistle ends as it began, with assurance. As Paul states in Philippians 1.6, it is an assurance that God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Believer, you and I need, do not need to fear the apostasy because we are protected by God. But notice here the duality between God's sovereign power and our responsibility. God keeps us from stumbling, but believer, you and I must keep ourselves in God's love. God will also present us as blameless, but we must build ourselves up in the most holy faith. How are you doing with that? Are you remaining in God's love? Are you building yourself up in the faith? Now Jude's epistle, though only 25 verses, is not insignificant. However, this epistle is often neglected by the modern church. Stephen Krafchick best sums up the modern church's neglect of Jude. He states, Jude is not an epistle one reads for comfort or to ponder esoteric questions about theology. It is a letter of challenge. It is a letter of outrage. And we are unaccustomed to this much passion. See, like the suffering and scattered saints of the first century... The scattered and suffering saints of the 21st century would do well to immerse themselves in this epistle. I challenge you to heed the charges leveled against the false teachers and be aware and wise. Without a doubt, Jude sets forth this scathing condemnation against them. However, knowing that the false teachers will attempt to sneak in unaware in order to wreck your faith believer means that you ought to be on alert. As well, believer, I challenge you to heed the charges Jude has set forth for you. Contend earnestly for the faith. Remember the words of the apostles and the works of the apostates. Remain in God's love and show mercy to believers struggling or even spreading false teaching. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank and praise you for this text of Jude. Two verses, a closing doxology, and yet so much punch in it. In it we see your power. In it we see our response to your power, which is praise. I thank you, Father, that Lord, it is you who keeps us from stumbling. It is you who keeps us from apostatizing. And Father, we look forward to that great and future day when you will present us blameless and sinless in your presence, in your glory. And so, Father, because it is Christ who has done this work, it is Christ who is doing this work, it is Christ who will do this work, 
I ask that, Father, you might help us to praise him. That we would acknowledge his glory. That we would acknowledge his majesty. That we might acknowledge his dominion and authority. Not just over the world, but over us. And so, Father, may he get all the glory. May he get all the praise. Lord, this has been a difficult epistle. Lots of negative. Which we are very much unaccustomed to. But, Father, one that is written for our warning. One that is written to protect us from those who would seek to shipwreck or destroy our faith. Help us to heed these warnings. Help us to heed these charges against the false teachers. And finally, Father, help us to heed the charges to us. Help us, Father, to contend for the faith. Help us, Father, to remember the words of the apostles. Help us, Father, to remain in your love. And help us, Father, to show mercy to our brothers and sisters who are struggling and even to those who may be caught in or spreading false teaching. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.